Um, morning, everyone. As Simon says, we are carrying on our summer series in 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to le- read through the passage in a minute. So if you've got Bibles or electronically equipped Bible devices with you, then if you want to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, and we're going to read up to chapter 5, verse 11. Um, and in this passage, um, Paul gives us some in-depth teaching on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, it is has got some complications in it, but to be honest, I was really quite pleased when we were divvying out the summer preaching series, and I got this one. And the reason I was pleased is that actually, I don't think Jesus' return, his second coming, is something that we talk about that much, really. And I think maybe it's something that we should probably think about and talk about a bit more. And while I was thinking, well, where, where have I got this impression from? Um, if you think through kind of the worship songs uh, that you may be familiar with, whether within Jubilee or kind of in the wider field of Christian music, I was struggling to think of that many which really talk about or celebrate or worship God about this aspect um, of our belief that Jesus will come again and that there will be a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. There, there isn't that much out there compared to maybe some of the other f- themes that we sing. So as I say, I was really pleased to have a chance to maybe do a bit of teaching on this this morning. Um, I was much less pleased earlier on in the series when first Simon and then James promised that I'd be doing you a masterclass on the second coming. <laughs> Nothing like raising expectations. So um, we're, not, we're not going to go down the masterclass route today, but we are going to really get into this passage and see what God is saying to us through it. Um, so let's dive in. Let's read through the passage. Um, If you're joining us for the first time or not that familiar with your Bible, you can find 1 Thessalonians towards the end of the Bible and after the book of Colossians and before the book of 2 Thessalonians. So I'm going to, that's a a trick there. Um, So I'm going to read through the passage for us. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate 
and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer off, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. As we've been going through this series on 1 Thessalonians, one theme that's been really clear through all of the passage is that this is a deeply personal letter from Paul, that this is a deeply pastoral letter. Um, It's written with um, a lot of affection. And unlike other books that Paul writes, for example, Ephesians or Romans, it's not a big theological presentation of the gospel. And so actually, when we get to this passage, it kind of jars a bit because actually we've had this kind of pastoral theme up to this point. But then we do get some theology. We do get some kind of really to the point teaching. Um, But it is on a very specific topic, as we've talked about. It is on the second coming of the Lord. And so that kind of got me thinking, well, in this kind of pastoral letter, why does Paul do this? Why does he at this stage give us um, this kind of theological presentation of what's going to happen when Jesus returns. Um, I think there's a few reasons for that. Um, But to get to the heart of it, I want to start by telling you a story from my own life. Um, We need to go back quite a few years. So if you can imagine me just starting secondary school, which was year eight where I was. So I was kind of, I think, around age 13 when this happened. Um, Something very, very, very exciting happened. It was announced that the school in the following year would be doing a ski trip to the USA. So that was that was incredibly exciting for me. Um, I love skiing. Uh, My obsession with America had already started back then. And the chance to go away for I think it was 10 days with my mates to America on a school trip. That was just the most fantastic thing in the world. So. We all signed up. We all handed our parental consent forms in. But then we were told that there are only a limited number of places and that they'd draw randomly who get these places on the trip. So this was kind of hanging all over all of us for quite a few weeks. We knew this trip was going ahead. We we all wanted to go, but we didn't actually know who was going. Um, And the day came where they put the list up outside the headmaster's office after assembly. It was quite an old fashioned school. We did things via notice boards and lists and it was 400 years old. It was kind of quite Hogwarts like. So you can imagine us all kind of crowding around seeing what's been announced. And I did not get on that ski trip. I did not get. That is the right response. That's what I needed at that moment. And but genuinely at that point in my life, it was it was probably kind of the most hard thing I'd had to accept. It was probably the biggest disappointment that I'd faced at that point. And I don't know if you've got any examples, and they're they're probably more serious, to be honest, than a missed ski trip. But I don't know if you've had things in life where there seems something that's just so certain, something that's so tangible, and it's just taken away from you. That That kind of confusion, that kind of frustrated hope, that disappointment, that's, that's something that I felt really keenly in that moment. And I don't know if you felt that over things in life as well. And I think this is what Paul was fearing for the Thessalonians when he's writing this passage. We'll go into detail in a minute. But what appears to be going on is there seems to be the risk of some kind of heresy 
coming into the church, which says, well, actually, those who have died before Christ returns are lost. They won't be caught up. They won't be saved. You, you need to still be alive when Jesus returns in order to go to heaven. That seems to be the issue that he's addressing. And you can imagine if that was, if that was going on, how confusing and how hope-stealing that must be for the Thessalonian church. This is a church who, as we heard, have been through a huge amount even to get established. Riots, beatings, being torn apart from Paul and Silas and Timothy after just a few weeks in all likelihood. And a church that against all of the odds has survived. So now to have their kind of the key hope of the gospel potentially taken away from them, that'd be pretty devastating. And that really puts into perspective maybe some of our disappointments. So that was Paul's heart in this. That was Paul's heart in writing such a, such a detailed theological passage. He really wanted to assure the Thessalonians that this was not the case. He wanted to make sure that this hope wasn't stilled away. This was his precious church, his young, precious church, which he said was his joy before the Lord. And he needed to protect them at all costs from this false teaching. But that kind of raises the question, given how encouraged we've seen Paul is in the letter so far about the progress that the Thessalonians have made in the faith, kind of why was there even room? Why was there even a possibility of this quite severe heresy sinking into the church? Well, we've got a couple of clues in the passage, I think. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that we don't actually know to what extent this heresy had taken root. So it's probably unlikely that the whole church were on their knees in despair over this. What's more likely is that they'd received some partial teaching from Paul on Jesus' second coming, but not, but not the whole picture. And given you've only got a few weeks with a young fledgling church, you're not going to have had the chance to teach them in all of the fundamentals in a lot of depth. So there's likely that it was more a sense of confusion rather than absolute, we don't know what's going on here. Um, and as we heard from a couple of weeks ago when Simon was preaching, um, some of the things that Paul addresses in the latter part of the letter um, are questions that he's received from the church. In all likelihood, they were able to get some questions to him, maybe via a letter, maybe via messengers. And it looks like that this is something that they had specifically inquired about as well. So we've got this, we've got this potential threat of a heresy. We've got this kind of incomplete teaching um, in the early days of the church. And we've got the Thessalonians themselves asking Paul for kind of just more on this topic. So I think that gives us kind of quite a, quite a rounded picture um, of why Paul says and what he does say in the passage this morning. And I was thinking, well, that's, that's kind of nice to know, that's good to know, but does, does, does that really help us? Um, but I think there's a real profound lesson for us in this, in that Paul, kind of like a doctor, he sees that there's a potential threat to the health of his patient, and he comes up with some medicine. And the medicine that he comes up with is the passage that we've just read, the teaching that we've just read. And I think what the lesson for us is, is that actually theology and teaching is a really powerful pastoral tool. And kind of because we think about ministry often in terms of the fivefold ministries, we can often think, OK, so we've got the teaching here and then we've got the pastoral stuff over here. 
But actually, I think that's a really false and dangerous divide. Paul is using teaching, he's using truth about God in order to assure kind of the journey and faith of his church. So I think we're, we're going to come back to this um, when we think about applying this passage. But just have that category in mind, kind of theology as being kind of pastoral dynamite for us to use in the different circumstances we may come across in our own walks with God. Um, so, yeah, as we turn to look at the passage, I just need to flick back to. Yeah, as we turn to look at the passage in some detail, um, my aim today isn't to go down kind of the route of deep eschatology. And what I mean by that is we're not going to spend today considering all of the pre and post millennial and tribulationist and dispensationalist type stuff. All fascinating, all interesting, not for this morning. Um, I'm guessing most of you are probably relieved about that. Um, there might be a few of you who are disappointed about that, though, that if you're into that kind of stuff. Um, if you're in that camp, um, don't worry. We are going to dedicate one session next year in Jubilee Bible School to the book of Revelation. And we will go into these questions about um, timings and sequences, events and all, all of these kinds of questions um, in that session. Uh, but the reason I don't want to go down that path today is that as we've seen, actually, that wasn't what Paul's heart was in this passage. Paul's heart is in this passage was pastoral. And Jubilee, this is my heart as I come and share this word with you this morning, that we are encouraged by this. And I think there are kind of much deeper ways we can be encouraged than by going into kind of quite a complex and well-debated area of theology. Um, so I think there are two very clear messages this morning from this passage, and that's how, I'm gonna, that's how we're going to look through it. So message number one is that the second coming is going to happen. It is a reality. Jesus is going to return and wrap up history. Point number one. Point number two is that knowing this should affect how we live. Knowing this truth should have a direct impact on how we live out our faith as a church and as Christians. And so we're going to look at the passage under those two headings today. So um, first section we're going to consider is from chapter 4, verse 13, up to chapter 5, verse 3. And I'm just calling this the reality of the second coming. So let's read verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Um, so when Paul says fall asleep, that's just a colloquial term for saying those who have already died. So they've come to faith in Christ. Um, but at the time of Paul writing to them, some of the believers have already died. So that's what he means by falling asleep. And just to make the point a bit further, Paul, Paul is really keen that they are not in ignorance. So this is a real fear of Paul's that actually because they don't have that kind of solid understanding, that solid un teaching on what happens when a Christian dies and what's going to happen when Jesus returns and um, that they're going to live in ignorance. So just to pull that point out again. Paul's heart is to kind of really teach into the Thessalonian church on this matter. But then we get an interesting contrast because he says, we don't want you to be ignorant, but we also don't want to, you to grieve like the rest of men with no hope. So when he's talking about grieving for the dead, Paul clearly sees that there should be a distinct vision, a distinct difference between the vision of what Christian grieving looks like compared to the grieving that was going around um, in the rest of society. 
Um, so as we heard in the opening sermon, um, Thessalonia is in kind of uh, present day Macedonia, but the wider kind of Greek region. Um, and the kind of Greek pagan culture that they were living in had a really, really pessimistic view of death. Death was a very bad thing. There, there wasn't kind of great theologies of kind of hope after death. There was these murky underworlds and, and things like this. So death was something to be avoided at all costs in the culture um, of the Thessalonian church. Hence, if, if someone in that culture did die, there would understandably be a huge amount of grief. And what Paul isn't saying is that, in contrast, Christians shouldn't grieve um, when one of us dies. No, of course we should grieve. But what he is saying is that we shouldn't grieve without hope. And that, that is the key difference. There was, there was no hope um, for those um, in the pagan cultures when they died. Whereas, as we're going to go on to see, for the things that um, Paul teaches them, there is a huge amount of hope for us as Christians when we die. And I think it's an interesting contrast as well, because I think many of the things we're seeing in contemporary Western society aren't actually that far removed in attitude to some of the pagan attitudes towards death. We see an absolute obsession with health at the moment. We see, we see things like people looking into, can I be frozen? And, and, and when the science has got there, be woken up. This kind of desperation to escape death, um, both through preserving our life um, as we live and then possibly through weird and wonderful scientific things that I don't pretend to understand. That, that kind of thing is becoming really rain, mainstream and really, really common. So the kind of, this, this kind of fear of death, this hopelessness of death is, is something that the people around us will probably be living in. So, so our message is a great message of hope because that's not how we have to view death. That's not how we have to view um, life after this one. So where does this hope come from? What, why do we have a hope that's different to the rest of the world? What is the distinct Christian hope after death? Well, let's read on to verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that Jesus, sorry, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So absolutely kind of fundamentally linked to our hope beyond this life and also linked to the return of the Lord Jesus is the fact that he has rose again. That after having been crucified and in the grave for three days, God rose Jesus from the dead. And that was the start of the story of reversing death. Because death wasn't in God's original design for this creation. Death was not something that God imagined when he created the earth. Death came about as a consequence of sin. And so Jesus, having taken the penalty for sin on the cross, was then raised by the power of God from death to kind of complete that triumph over death. So the, kind of, the, the, the reversal has started and the story of kind of creation declining into death and decay has begun with Jesus's resurrection from the dead. And it's that power, that kind of historic reversal that God has set in motion that is our hope for when we die. Because as Paul says here, actually, if we are in him, when we die, we will be raised up with Jesus. And we can have confidence in that because God has already raised Jesus from the dead. So this is where our hope comes from after death, the fact that Jesus has already been raised from the dead. 
and that God has promised that he will bring us who are in him with Jesus. So that's on the general picture. We then see Paul kind of go on to address the specific heresy that I mentioned at the start. This question of those about, well, what about those who have already tied before Jesus returns and haven't managed to hold on for his return? Well, in verse 15, it addresses it specifically. He says, according to the Lord's own word, we, will te- we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So absolutely black and white, there is no advantage over still being alive when Jesus returns to those who have passed away in him before that point. He just, he just cuts, that, cuts that heresy short right there. Um, just where it says, according to the Lord's own word, um, that could mean a couple of things. It could mean that um, Jesus, um, after he rose from the dead, but before he ascended back to his father, he may have provided to the disciples some specific teaching on this uh, that Paul has got hold of um, through his kind of apostolic networks. Um, Or it's possible it was some kind of um, prophetic revelation that Paul himself received. Um, But either way, um, the reason he writes that is to say, no, guys, you can really, really trust this. This comes on Jesus's authority. This isn't just Paul's Paul's philosophy being a bit more hopeful and a bit more kind than the pagan philosophy. No, this is a guarantee from the Lord Jesus that you will rise with him and that those who are already dead face no disadvantage over us who are still alive. So that's putting the heresy to bed, which is fantastic. Uh, but Paul then goes on just, just to kind of really, and this is one of the most kind of vivid kind of imageries we get of the actual event itself of Jesus returning. So verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Well, so there's quite a lot in there. Um, I think there's a few key things uh, that we need to pick out. Um, The sound of the trumpet, the voice of the archangel, the loud command of heaven. We, we, we have no idea what that actually will be like. We, have, we, we, we just cannot picture that. I think what we can say with certainty is that it is going to be powerful. It is going to be overwhelming. It is going to be definite. There will be an absolutely no doubt that this is the moment. And we're going to have a little bit more of a think about that in a minute. Um, Paul really presses the point, though, in verse 17, that we who are still alive and left with him will be caught up after those who have already risen from the dead. So he's even suggesting that actually those who are still alive might have to wait their turn a bit in whatever kind of transaction goes in the judgment. So in case they're not assured enough by this point, Paul really pulls this out in some detail. No, those who are dead will rise in the judgment and those who are still alive will become part of it as well. So there will be a resurrection of the dead at the judgment. And then those who are in Christ, both those who are dead and alive, in the language used in verse 17, 
will be caught up together in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And this is probably the most kind of confusing verse in all of Paul's description. Um, again, there is there is division on what it means. Some some take it some take it literally that actually um, there will be kind of an upward ascension. Um, some say it's it's just it's just kind of Paul using language that they get. So it's it's quite a hard thing to explain. Kind of the second coming and rising from the dead and meeting with Jesus. So actually, th- th- this this is just kind of language that the Thessalonian church will understand. Okay dead people in the ground, us standing up, we'll all go into the air and it all will happen there. So just kind of trying to keep it simple. Um, I think the key point is, is that clearly at this point, history, time, as we know it, has come to an end. There'll be some, there'll be some incredible transaction, some, we, we don't know what exactly this judgment will be like, but it will be big, it will be spiritual, um, God will be very present and it, it, it will happen. So I think what we can take from that verse, we who are left will be caught up together with them and meet the Lord in the air. No one's going to get left out. We're all going to be in it together. and We don't really know what it's going to be like. But we do know that we will meet the Lord in that day. And we do know that we'll meet the Lord in judgment, which is something we've been hearing again is a theme that we've been coming back to throughout the series. And actually, it's been interesting, hasn't it, how at the end of each passage so far, Paul's constant refrain is coming back to um, when Jesus returns or when we are raised to meet Jesus. So that backs up the point again that clearly the Thessalonians had some knowledge about this because otherwise Paul would have had to explain it the first time he mentioned it. But the fact that he keeps on coming back to it as an encouragement and now kind of lands in it with such power in this passage, this is really this is really a massively important theme in Paul's mind for the church. And I'd suggest for us too. And, and why, why is it so important? Well, if we look at verse 18, we have what again feels like almost a massive change of tone. After describing these kind of big, kind of cosmic, apocalyptic events, Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. He hasn't finished on the theology and we're going to get on to more of it in a second. But he, even in the middle of this passage, he wants to break and say, guys, the point of all of this is to be encouraged. We have a hope. We have a hope of eternity with the Lord Jesus. That's what we're hanging on for. That's what we're making the sacrifice for. That's why we're making choices in this life, which may make our lives more difficult. This is why we're saying no to things that the rest of the world seems to say yes to and causes us difficulty. It's because of the hope that we have. Therefore, encourage each other with this hope. So if we move into chapter five, um, Paul returns to give some more details about Jesus's second coming. And, it, and it's possible, again, that this may have been kind of a sub question that the Thessalonians ask, given he starts by saying, now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. So, so maybe they had started asking questions like, is, is this going to happen in the next 10 years, the next 50 years, the next 100 years? Um, but he's saying, brothers, we really do not need to write to you about this. We have said already, verse two, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, 
destruction will come upon them suddenly as labour pains upon a pregnant woman. I think from those three verses, two things to pull out. Firstly, just the suddenness of it. It's not like it's not like we can get a warning about this. It's not like the weather forecast where we can see that a storm is coming in three days' time and make preparation. No, this is going to be a sudden thing that happens. And Paul is just using Jesus' own words and Jesus' own teaching here. Jesus himself says, not even the Son of Man knows the day or the hour when he will return. And I just want to linger on that for a moment, because if not knowing when this is going to happen was good enough for Jesus, it has to be good enough for us. It really, really is a complete waste of time for us to go down the path of, well, let's work out if actually there is some secret code where we can work out the year where Jesus is going to return. And even Christians, I've seen, we can get into panic over things like the Mayan calendar coming to the end or the millennium bug. All of these things where we think, oh, is, is, is this it? Is, is this the clue coming up? Or have, have this number of historic events yet happened which suggest that actually Jesus is about to come back? Or have we reached this percentage of people in this many people groups so that the gospel has been everywhere and therefore Jesus can come back? We can spend so much time futilely asking these questions. And I'm, I'm sorry if I've offended you. I'm sorry if you've ever done any of that kind of thing. But I'm just saying what Jesus said. Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour of the coming of the Son of Man. And he is the Son of Man and he doesn't know. It is in the Father's counsel and in the Father's will alone when that day will be. So, yeah, let's not get hooked up on, on things like codes and timings and clues and how much stuff we need to do in order to make Jesus come back. I really don't think it's helpful as we encourage each other to walk in faith. And just to push the point home even further, if we just reflect for a second, I absolutely believe that it is completely plausible that Jesus will return before I finish this talk. At the same time, I believe with all my heart that it's absolutely plausible that Jesus could not return for millions and millions of years. What if God keeps on rolling out the gospel of grace for generations and generations and generations? What if they turn around in two million years time and said, wow, he sent Jesus so soon after sending Adam. It could be two million years away. It could be before I've even finished speaking this talk. We do not know God's timing in this. We do not know his purpose. And therefore we need to be prepared, but not panicked. Prepared, but not panicked for his return. And I think this is the message that Paul kind of goes on to give if we look at kind of verses four through to seven. He says, but you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. She will just pause there for a moment. So Paul's kind of bringing in some imagery here around night and day, like light and light and darkness. And, and what he's saying initially about the darkness is that kind of 
if, if the church didn't have this knowledge about Jesus's return, if the church was thinking in the same way as the pagan culture that was surrounding it, that would be a darkness of thinking. It, it, would, it would cloud how they perceive the world and perceive God. They, they would be surprised about Jesus's return um, if they were not fully expecting it because of the truth of his resurrection. So he contrasts that kind of darkness of knowledge with verse five. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So the light is knowing that Jesus has risen from the dead, believing that Jesus is Lord. That is the light, as Paul's talking about here. But then he kind of he plays with the metaphor a bit um, by going on to say, um, we been, do not belong to the night or to the darkness um, and tying it back to how we live. So in Simon's passage two weeks ago, when we um, talked about living holy lives, particularly in the area um, of sexual morality, in light of the truth that we know, Paul's kind of coming back to this again. He's saying, because you know these things, because you are children of the light, because you are not in darkness, do not live as if you were in darkness, which is where kind of in verse seven, this language about sleeping and drunkenness comes in. This idea of someone waiting, well, not knowing that Jesus is coming back and kind of living their life in, in a slumber, in, in the kind of this slumber of knowledge of not knowing, but also in a slumber of lifestyle. Um, in, this, in this getting drunk at night, which is kind of a picture Paul uses here of kind of all, all of all of the things we might do if we weren't living our life for God. So I think it, I don't think we should focus too much on the drunkenness itself, but it's an example of one act um, that if you are not living expecting Jesus's return could be representative of many different acts. And then Paul goes on to contrast, but since we belong to the day, let us, and we're going to go on to that in a minute, but there's a, there's a contrast again here, isn't there? that we can, live, we can live life of light. Our, our lives, our holiness can be light. It's not just what, what we believe is light compared to ignorance, which is darkness. It's actually that our lives ourselves reflect that light in contrast to the lives which reflect the darkness of ignorance. So how do we go about living those lives of light? I shouldn't have chosen that phrase. That alliteration is really difficult. How uh, Lives of light. How do we go about living these lives of light? OK, so let's carry on in verse eight. Uh, but since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, pitting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, those who have been attentive uh, may be recalling that in the very first um, message in the series, we looked about these three, faith, hope and love. Faith, hope and love as being kind of a constant theme that appears not just in this letter, indeed not just even in Paul's letters, but throughout the New Testament. There is this real emphasis that actually the light of life, the Christian life, the life of hope, both what it looks like and actually how we're going to achieve it is a life of faith, love and hope. And You'll notice here as well, um, Paul's talking about the breastplate and the helmet and kind of that will really evoke um, that famous armour of God passage that we know really well. And this is this almost feels like it was a bit of a prototype for that. So 1 Thessalonians was one of the earliest books written 
And it's almost like Paul was kind of developing this, this imagery for the Thessalonian church for here, which then became that kind of mighty passage of spiritual warfare um, that we know so well. But, but that same kind of urgency is still here, e- e- even though we don't have the full picture of the whole armour, that kind of put on your breastplate of faith and love, put on the hope of salvation. It's that kind of active pursuit of these things in every area of our life. And why are we to do this? Verse nine, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, if we are in Christ, we have salvation. That last day will be scary, but we do not need to fear it. That last judgment will be terrible, but we know that we're not going down in it. We know that Jesus has brought us salvation. We know that we are not destined for wrath. And if the Lord Jesus Christ has brought us salvation, has he not poured out all things to us? Has he not poured out, as Ephesians says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Is there not faith and love and hope that we can call down from heaven and put on and equip ourselves with as we walk through this life, as we walk through trying to be the light of Christ in this world? Verse 10, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. I think that phrase, we may live together with him, is so important. Because you could read the passage up to this point, or if you're the Thessalonian church, you could hear this letter being read out for the first time and think, okay, this is great. I've been saved. The dead will rise in the judgment. Those who are in Christ are going to be spared. Christ died for my sins. This is great. I'm covered. But that's all kind of what we're saved from. And then this little verse that we may live together with him, this really evokes kind of what we are saved for. Guys, being a Christian, being saved isn't just about avoiding hell. And actually, if, we, if that's all we want to do, if that's our only aspiration in following Jesus to avoid hell, then we're not going to have the kinds of lives that God envisages us to have. We're not going to have that restoration of relationship with him. We're not going to have that relationship of joy and love and thankfulness is if all we see God as is someone who's let us off the hook. No, he, he is our heavenly father. He wants to know us. He wants relationship with us. He wants our whole lives to be electrified by knowing him, by having the Holy Spirit live with us. And so our hope going forward through this day of judgment into the eternity that is beyond is that we'll be with him. That is our prize. That is our treasure, that we will be with Jesus forever that on the new earth and in the new heavens, there will be no end to our relationship with him. We'll never stop getting to know him more. It will go on and on and on. We will live together with him. And I just wonder if there's anyone who wouldn't say they'd yet committed themselves to Jesus, if they wouldn't call themselves a Christian. I think it's really important that you hear this. There is a judgment coming. You will face God You will need an answer on that day. And Jesus is the only answer you will be able to give. But there is just such a treasure of joy in the Christian life. Joy like it's impossible to know without being filled with the Holy Spirit. Joy that it's impossible to know without relationship with God. There'll be hardships. There will be sacrifices. 
that actually it's all worth it because, as it says here, we will be with God forever. We will be with Jesus, our wonderful saviour and king forever and ever. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up. And I hope by now it's really obvious why that is such a clear response to everything that Paul's been talking about. He comes back to it again. Keep on encouraging each other. Keep on encouraging each other, just as in fact you are doing. He knew that the Thessalonians' ability to build each other up in the faith and not just rely on him as the expert, as the apostle, was absolutely critical to their ongoing preservation of the faith. They needed to become skilled encouragers, skilled builders-uppers, and not just offering a kind word when things are hard, good as it is, but actually bringing the real truths that they believe to bear on every situation that they face. And I I want to spend a bit more time here. I want to spend some time for us, Jubilee, thinking about this in a bit of detail. Um, You may have noticed that over, well, certainly this calendar year, we've been spending a lot of time as a church considering discipleship. So we've been mainly looking at Jesus's relationship to his disciples. Um, But looking, moving to 1 Thessalonians, let you into a secret. That wasn't actually a shift. We're still carrying on our series in discipleship by looking through 1 Thessalonians. And I hope that's really obvious with all of the encourage one another's we've been thinking about this morning. So what what I want to do really simply, Jubilee, is just give you permission to use this kind of encouragement, to use this kind of discipleship in your life groups, in your relationships, when we meet together after coffee. Guys, don't be scared to take the big truths. Don't be scared to take kind of the things that are at the heart of the faith and bring them to bear on the situations that we might find ourselves in. And I know we can be fearful, and quite rightly so, that we don't want to just be sounding like we're putting platitudes over people's very real problems. But guys, the truths we've been looking at this morning, these are not platitudes. These are realities. These are the reasons we're all gathered here this morning in the first place. These are the reasons that we have a hope. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, if we only hope in Christ for this life, we are the most pitied amongst all people. As if we're only turning up here this morning to kind of give ourselves a bit of a trivia along through our, through our life, it's really not a lot of point. We might as well, as it says, go away, eat, drink, be merry, because we don't, we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know how long our life's going to be. We can't control it. If there was nothing beyond it, this is all a waste of time, to put it bluntly. We are here because we have a hope beyond this life. So don't be afraid to bring it into the here and now when we do need to keep going, where we do need to keep on keeping on in the kind of muck of life that we might face. So ha- have theology as a number one discipleship, discipleship tool. And all that is, is taking truths about God and encouraging us with it. That's all using theology as a pastoral tool means. Taking a truth about God and encouraging each other with it. And I really want to, I guess, encourage you in, as each as individuals, and maybe if we have chances to meet up over the summer as well, let's spend a bit more time here. By that, I mean, let's spend a bit more time 
meditating on, considering the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that we have beyond that. It really isn't just the topic for the slightly fringe element in the church. It is right at the heart of what we believe. So don't don't be afraid of of, of thinking of these things. Uh, Rob, in his talk, um, almost prophesied that he feels there's a large number of things that increasingly are becoming unpopular to say in our society. And there are things that we're going to have to stand up for and possibly be hurtful because we believe them. And I think in, in the first instance, we're already seeing that in some kind of social and ethical issues. But I think this truth very firmly fits in this category. God judging us is a wildly unpopular idea. It is a wildly unpopular idea. There is such an emphasis on kind of self-autonomy and self-determination. And I will do things my way. And actually, um, you can do things your way. You'll do things your way. But I'm going to do things my way. And that's, that's actually at the essence of my existence, the ability to determine my identity, who I am and what I do. And so to say that there's going to be a point in history where God is going to judge every single life according to his standard. That is unthinkable for this mindset. But that is the majority mindset that we find ourselves living amongst. So putting our hands up and saying, no, actually, I believe that there is an objective standard. I believe that there is a God who is going to hold you to account for your life. That's going to shock people. And that can be a good thing because it might shock them into investigating this more. But it's also likely to get us ridiculed. It is likely to get us scorned. It is likely to be the part of the Christian message that never gets broadcast on Songs of Praise. It's going to be the bit that everyone's going to want to push to the margins because it goes so against kind of our current cultural trends. Now, I hesitate to, to put forward this question given everything I said earlier, but I'm going to trust that you listened to what I said earlier. So I'm going to trust that we have got the point that we really do not know when Jesus is going to turn. We're going to trust that we've got that in our minds, that we all believe it, and that what I'm going to say next isn't going to shake that. So what I'm going to say now is a useful question to ask ourselves when we want to think about, well, how should we live? What should we actually do in response to these truths? is to say, well, if I, if I knew Jesus was going to return in one year, what would I do with that year? What would you do if you knew Jesus was going to return in a month, in a week? And we need to be careful with that question, because I don't want us to think of all of the things that clearly we would want to do and then get whole load of guilt because we find ourselves doing other things on a day-to-day basis but I, I do think it's helpful to take those things and think well what space do they have in my day-to-day life or my week-to-week life am I making the space for the things that really should be prioritized given I know that Jesus will return and that there will be a judgment given I know that I'm going to come face to face with God and be asked for an account of my life Am I, am I living kind of with that reality in mind? Given I know that Jesus is going to return, 
And for those who have not put their trust in him, that day is going to be a day of death and judgment and hell. Am I making space in my life for those who do not know Jesus yet? Um, do I have that, that real urgency? Is, is there an urgency about my life? And guys, I'm not saying this from any position of superiority whatsoever. I've been haunted by these questions as I've been preparing for this talk this morning. But where I've landed on again is that we need to hold this tension between living with an urgency of knowing that Jesus will return, but also holding the fact that we don't know when, so actually we shouldn't live every day in a complete panic. A, a way of thinking about it is, is almost to flip the question the other way then. So if I knew it was going to be way beyond my lifetime that Jesus would return, what kind of life as a whole do I want to live? So we need to hold these two intention, kind of the urgency, then also the fact that God calls us to very specific um, individual lives with different callings, which will look and shape differently. So I'd be, I'd be devastated if we all went out and all did the same things for the next week, because that, that's what you thought was the application of the sermon. It's not. But I do, I do want you to, to hold these questions, these serious questions, as you consider how you live in this next week, in this next month. Now, possibly because most of the passages have resulted in us ending on the gospel and on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we spent quite a few times in response this series, just, just in silence. And I think, it would be, I think it would be appropriate to do that again this week. Um, but what I'm going to ask is for those of you who do need that time, who do want to do some business with God in response to these truths, absolutely take that time. But I want, what I want the rest of us to do is, as the band come back up, um, we're going to sing in response to this passage. And the reason we're going to do that is because, as I hope I've made clear throughout, the real tone I want us to finish on is that these truths are encouraging. We should be encouraged that Jesus is going to come back. We should be encouraged that he is going to take us to be with him forever. We should be encouraged that kind of the grace that we see in part now will one day fully come and that we can keep on going knowing that that is a rock solid, guaranteed, secured reality because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and because of the word of the Lord in these matters.